Today we begin 2 Samuel. So 1 Samuel is a, uh, if you think about as like a series of events uh, in David's life, the life of David, part one, has ended. And this has been young David as a shepherd boy being anointed uh, by Samuel, and that he would go to the battlefield as a young boy who couldn't even wear Saul's armor, but defeated his nine-foot giant Goliath and became national hero. And as coming back, he actually became a target for jealous King Saul. And for 10 plus years, he played, uh, his life was miserable, uh, not only taken everything away, and even his uh, friends and close friends and family members couldn't stay with them together because, because the King Saul's might have harmed them. So he lived in cave and wilderness. Uh, at many times he were probably clueless. But that chapter has ended. And chapter 1 of Second Samuel begins with the report about King Saul and Jonathan, along with two other sons. Saul has only one son left, and then we will learn about him uh, next week. But let's give a, a little quick overview of uh, chapter one, entire chapter. Oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> Once again, the purpose of this quick overview is that we would not get immersed in moralistic teaching of the story. That actually, who is the main character of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel? All throughout the scripture, God himself. Sovereign God is at work, and we need to know what's undercurrent. And he, this will, uh, for a quick overview, will help us to look for the right things. Number one, just to give an overview, chapter one is an episode of two stories. One is the report of a young Amalekite uh, coming to a report about King Saul and Jonathan's death. And number two, David's response to that news, his lament, and the song of the bow. Bow was a favorite weapon of Jonathan, his best friend. And then the referring to as a simply the bow, but uh, other NIV will name it out as a song of the bow. Secondly, it is the end of David's trial as a fugitive, running for life from King Saul and his armies for the, more than 10 years, as I mentioned. Thirdly, it rep, uh, presents us a question about what might have been really going on 
in David's heart. In spite of his public grief and lament. And one might read this with uh, a little bit of a cynicism. Come on, he, after all, he's a political figure now. He has to have that front. But inside, he must be glad that he's sworn enemy who's been trying to kill him and sending assassins and sending all these army to, to try to kill him. He's dead. He must be really glad. Is it true? The question remains. And having gone through this, that we will come away with valuable lessons on faith in dealing with bitterness, perspective, and priorities from David's example as a case study, how and why David responded the way he did. So let's start with um, making quick observation as we read through the whole chapter. Uh, first with the story of the report of young Amalekite. And then we will turn to David's song of lament, the song of the bow. Verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man, man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he said, he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. Saul and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on, the, on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, his chariot, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he, said, look, when he looked and behind him, and he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the omelet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. So notice the, the timing of this. If you remember uh, past two 
lessons and uh, studies on uh, uh, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel and 29, we would remember that when King, uh, David and his, ar his army, uh, 600 men, came back to the Philistine town that they were living in, Ziklag, they found their town was burnt and their women, their wives and children are taken as a slave. And that's the spiritual awakening happened in the middle of bitterly wepting, wept, crying all day long until they couldn't cry anymore. There's no more strength left to cry. And then there's a very encouraging phrase shows up. And David strengthened himself in the Lord. David actually learned to turn to God and find his strength in the Lord. And by God's guidance, he and his men went and found Amalekites who actually did this and actually raided several other villages. He not only took all that he lost, their wives and children, but and yet their plunders. They brought it, and they have stayed in that town two more days until here this news. So in other words, when the Ziklag crisis was happening, the Saul and his army were having crisis in Mount Gilboa. And that was probably around the same time they were killed. But if you remember chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, story is different. King Saul was wounded because of arrow, and he didn't want the humiliation of being killed by Philistine. So he turned to his armor, armor bearer, kill me. The armor bearer, obviously being a Hebrew, were not only scared to king, kill his king, but also Lord's anointed. The Mosaic Lord strictly prohibited putting any hands on the Lord's anointed. In other words, that is extension of God's authority and blessing. So when he hesitated, the scripture said, King Saul fell on his own sword to kill himself. And then having seen that, his young armor bearer couldn't bear to staying alive and he killed himself by falling his own sword as well. So what, what is this discrepancy here? Most scholars, and I tend to agree that, this Amalekite young man is lying here. What's the purpose of lying? Everybody knew King Saul was after David. And if I bring the news on, if I, not only that, if I am the one who finished King Saul, David will be glad. And then this is a lottery jackpot. I will be rewarded. Why wouldn't I? 
didn't happen that way. But as you know, uh, as you probably can guess, may, can, it be, can he be telling the truth? Maybe so, but most not likely. Why? Because not only King, the scripture said he fell on his sword, what if he committed suicide? He's deeply wounded, but his life lingers, and he's still in pain. And then Amalekite, young man, and finished him. Possibility. Except that young armor bearer saw King Saul was dead, that he fell on his own sword as well. So regardless, what's happening is the motivation was clear. The young Amalekite was looking for some kind of reward that he actually brought the good news, he thought. But in reality, David took as a bad news. That's how he, he responded. Verse 11, look at it. Then David took hold of his cloth and torn them, uh, symbolizing bitter grief. I can't, this can't be happening. That was a, the ancient ex, uh, expression. And so did all the men who were with him. Maybe some of them finally, hooray, our trials are over. But they couldn't even raise their voice at all because their leader, their captain, was bitterly weeping and tearing apart his clothes. Verse 12, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to young men who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner. I'm a foreigner on Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David's response was totally opposite from the way that young Amalekite expected and almost maybe visualized several times. But when you think about this, there is a boomerang effect. It, chapter 15 of John, I mean, 1 Samuel, describes one of the main sins of King Saul. Uh, through prophet Samuel, God commanded him to wipe out 
all the Amalekites, leaving nothing, not even, a, not even any livestock, not even, even any woman and children, everyone. This was a God's severe judgment on Amalekites. The stories go all the way to Exodus. When Exodus, uh, Israelites were coming out of the Egypt, and Amalekites, the one who came behind the Israelites when they're not even formed as organized group and they didn't have an army. And from that point on, they were pointed as at the enemy of God. But because of Saul's greed, instead of taking command fully, he went just halfway. He killed all the sick ones and uh, somehow uh, the, the, the livestock that are not looking healthy, but the ones that are good, he kept them alive. And when Sam came, uh, Samuel came back, uh, also the king Agag, he wanted to use it as a, some kind of a political uh, manipulation with other things. So King Agag was alive as well. When King uh, Prophet Samuel came, you remember? He was furious that he would disobey the Lord's command. Now, a boomerang effect happens here. Because of his disobedience, this young Amalekite took the crown, took the crown, his bracelet, it's a protector of your arm, the part of armor. And if he was killed by him, literally, it, it is really the shameful death. If he lied, still, the crown and the bracelet was like a plunder. Instead of uh, rewarding him, the young Amalekite was executed. And then, according to Mosaic law, well, what is, uh, David is saying is that your blood be on your head is you are responsible for because you testify yourself. What if he lied? He, that's really even more unfortunate thing, that he died because of his lie. question still remains and lingers. Is this the political front? Or is this a really genuine sorrow and grief? I had to read it several times. Oh, come on. Okay, maybe he wasn't really glad Okay, I'll, I'll take that part. But he was deeply sorrowful because of King Saul's death. Even in secret, he wasn't he glad? 
that his problem was gone. But politically, he couldn't act like he's so joyful. This is the when you have a four cars at the end of uh, Texas Hold'em and you need to look cool instead of joyful about this. Right? But if we read through this song of uh, lament, it becomes clear. The answer becomes clear. The answer lies, one of the key answers lies in... Um, David's making this song public, not only, not only his personal song, but public lament. Verse 17, and David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said, said it, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, you glory, O Israel, is slain on the high on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Eshkelon. Those are two cities, the main city-state of Philistine. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or, or, or rain upon you, nor fields of off, off, offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan turned out turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of woman how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Your glory has fallen. The word glory can be translated into beauty. I think some other translations, modern translations, use that. Or NIV. Translated as a gazelle. The mountain, just imagine it. Beautiful horn and strength shows up. He goes up and up in the mount. And that was the figure. And obviously not, not to us, our 
you know, uh, modern-day city people, but people of Israel, gazelle was a symbol of strength and beauty and glory. Have you noticed in this lament, there is no just a slight, even the parenthetical, although he hated me too much, and although he was a crazy guy, I still think of him as lightly. No, nothing like that. He recalls only glory. The positive things. And one might think that, oh, once again, it's a political thing. Actually, you have to know the heart. After all, he's called a man after God's own heart. His anguish and his wrath is rooted in the name of God, not name of his king only. The name of God and for the people of God, the glory was slain. The beauty was slain. And think about this perspective that he has. He could be personal enemy. His death meant the stop and ending of his horrendous trials in cave and wilderness. But and yet, he wasn't acting. He was free from bitterness. King Saul was not his enemy, in spite of the fact that for the 10 years, David was the enemy of King Saul. What about, what about this timing issue? You know, think about when you're ordained by Samuel, the man of God, said you shall be king. Okay, maybe next month, maybe next year. At least next year. It took him for 10 plus years, not just living in a quiet life, but chasing, being chased by King Saul and his armies. And see this. We see David's heart. And I, as I am encounter his heart, I'm blown away by it. I surely thought he would have a secret joy that he's repressing. But he is genuinely sorrowful. His heart is ached. Once again, for the name and honor of God. And the people of God, Israel as the kingdom of God, the true king of Israel was God himself. And the, the human king was the servant, a means for God's glory and sovereignty. I draw three lessons that were very helpful that impacted me. But before I unpack that, I think it's worthwhile to go back to that last phrase about 
Jonathan, his friend. Verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. I'm very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of woman, how the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war perished. In spite of the crazy modern world, even among the Christian circle, using that as a evidence for homosexuality being practiced among between uh, David and Jonathan, this was what true spiritual friendship. Men and men, when woman and wo- woman, the true friendship in God in Christ can be like this. And he remembers his friend and honors. I'm praying for many Jonathans to come up in our church. Who would not mind to defer the limelight to other friends? Who would not mind to take the second seat? Who would not mind sacrifice for the love of friendship, for the glory of God, for the sovereign will of God, who strengthens hands of friends, meaning his or her trust in the Lord would be increasing. I'm praying that Cindy and David, amidst of this sorrowful days, their hands will be strengthened by many of us. Not the humanitarian way only. Of course, that tangible love is necessary. That we will genuinely pray for them. The Spirit will comfort them. The Lord will draw near to them. More than hands of any other human and appeasing words that we will learn to sacrifice ourselves of being alone in the pool of their pain without fixing them. Learning to be quiet in their pain. Now, here are three lessons. Lesson number one, David was free from bitterness and impatience What was his secret? Because he saw everything in his life from a God-centered perspective. So in other words, I see it this way. I feel it this way. How does God see this? What does it look like if I put myself in God-centered perspective? one One of that example is Chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, when he had a second chance to kill King Saul, right in front of him. He was sleeping. His spear was next to him. 
He's standing above him. And Abishai, his friend, courageous man, let me finish him. I will not strike twice, meaning I'm skillful enough to kill him at one blow. Let me do it. This is what he said. 26, chapter of Samuel, verse 23 and 24. The Lord rewards, oh, actually, after that, and then he stands before the, the higher ground and calls out King Saul. And then King Saul comes out and he told the story. I was there. I was to kill you, but I have not. And the reason is this, verse 23. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, may, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. So he saw his sufferings. He saw the bitterness of his life. From God's perspective. There is a huge difference. That he would just take it and try to be noble. I'm going to endure this bitterness. But I hate him. I'm not going to do anything. Versus if I see from God's perspective. God-centered perspective. I feel comforted. Because God is sovereign. All the application right away here, right? Our city is in trouble with the city zoning issue, but if we see city of Santa Ana and the zoning issue, it's like a monster. It's impassable. I feel so small. But if we see from God's point of view, the fate of Crossway Church is not in the hand of Santa Ana city government, but in sovereign God. We could anticipate how we might glorify and honor the name of the Lord through this trial. I don't know. So far, we see the hand of God. But we don't know the end of the tunnel is not we don't see the tunnel yet, but glimpses of his favor. And I will share that. I can't, I can't hardly wait until I share the news about tomorrow's meeting. So we ought to just experience this difference, this perspective makes in our own bitterness. And somebody hated you or somebody did wrong Injustice. Do you feel that you have a right to be angry? Rightly so, if you ask around. Yeah, yeah. But if you see that from God's point of view, along with David, we could say, like what Joseph said to the brothers who sold him as a slave, 
And actually, when he saw him and could forgave him, what you did, what you meant as evil, God took it as a good, not only for me, for all our people. Mysterious will of God in the brokenness of man. Second lesson, going further, David's ultimate priority was not to seek his own happiness and success, but to seek first the kingdom of God in his life. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus' axiom, spiritual axiom, was actually applied and practiced by David here. But seek first the kingdom of God, kingdom meaning not the land, reign or kingship or rule of God, and his righteousness, his ways, and all these things will be added unto you. Did David want to be king now, now that King Saul is dead? Of course. But did he take that into his own hands? He didn't need to be. He didn't want to be. Why? Because his trust in God, sovereign God, was that if I seek for the first the kingdom of God, he will meet my needs. These are not two opposite directions of things that I have to choose only one. Seeking first the kingdom of God, what God desires most, is actually leads to what I want. It's an eclipse of my joy and happiness. But oftentimes what we think in our crisis, in our, in our own lives, how it affects me, isn't it? Will I be successful through this or disadvantage? Is this a good thing for me or a bad thing? A right move for career or not? And as a church, we should all to think about this. Our prayer is not just a mere teleological happy ending that God, just fight for us, we could stay here. Our prayer, our, our prayer should be, God, show your sovereign will that we might glorify you, that we might see the greatness of God, that it will spill over to the secular world, to our friends, to the city of Santa Ana. Oh, I wish you could see this. People of God, and I love you, each one of you, and you love your family, and you love your kids, and they are so precious to you. But God is nudging in your heart right now. Those are not two separate things. If you are going for the second things only, what happens is you might mess up. First thing, therefore, second thing is not the same thing anymore. For example, 
you pray for your God, you know, your kids would be successful, and then you neglect the seeking the kingdom of God. First, what happens? They grow up, and they might be a successful doctor and lawyer and go to Ivy League schools, but leave faith. What good is it? You, you earn the whole world without having eternal life in Jesus Christ. You know that if you're a true believer, isn't it? Do you cry for their salvation? Do you cry for God's will on them? Your children, your family, and your house, and your career, your future, our church. Seek first kingdom of God. That's why David saw anguish in his heart. It's not mere Saul relationship. It's a name of God ruined in King Saul's death. And one little caveat here. Of course, he mentions about Israel. It looks like an Israel-centered perspective. The caveat is this. It's not about patriotism or nationalism. It is about the kingdom of God. David is concerned about God's reign in Israel. And obviously, Israel was a special nation chosen by God. But wrongly apply when we think about whatever is the best adequate conditions for American and foreign policies and domestic things. And yet we neglect God's will and God's righteousness. It'll be absolutely going wrong way. It is not political statement. Hear me well, okay? What's wrong with the white evangelicalism in our nation right now is actually exactly that. Instead of seeking the kingdom of God, will of God, righteousness of God, we went for what's prosperous for the nation of United States of America. We ought to humble ourselves and repent our snobbish attitude because of our wealth, because of our military power. So there is a huge difference in David as opposed to Jacob's story. Both of them, at a young age, they were given promises for blessing. Jacob was even the second one that he was promised God's special blessing upon him. But instead of waiting, instead of seeking God's kingdom first, he and his mom took matters in his own hand and manipulated his father and deceived him and got the blessing early. Well, how, what, what, what ended up happening? Majority of his life, it wasn't 10 years. For him, is when he became 130 years old, standing in front of Pharaoh 
and he's testifying what God has done in his life. And he said, it's been a rough years, decades and decades. It's taking a long way to finding God. And he became a broken man after Jebel River, wrestling with the angel of God, surrendered his will to God. David did that in the middle of his 10 years. Will you do it? Will you wrestle with God rather than rest in God's sovereignty? Will you seek your success and happiness first rather than God's kingdom first? God's reign in your life and your, your family, in your future? Third and last, my time's almost up, so let me finish with this. David's faith was not led by his feelings. Rather, his feelings were led by his faith in the trustworthiness of sovereign God. Oh, this was a very good lesson for me, very practical lesson. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 through 9 says this, For we, but we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it, our aim to please him. If we ask these questions, did David have feelings? Of course he does. He's a, he's a poet and he's a singer, he's a writer in touch with his feelings. Passionate man. Was he, was, were, he, were his feelings all positive? No. Probably just sometimes bitterness lingers, negativism and disillusionment, even self-pity. There are moments of a spiritual slumber and spiritual limbo as well, right? But the point is, in our lives, we're going to feel that. When you get up in the morning, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, this happens a lot to me as well. The negative talk happens. You are not good enough. And even in amongst what's going on in our church, zoning is also too. The, the negative things is, if you are not savvy enough, if you're, if you're just very effective leader, these problems will not come. What do you need to say? We need to take faith when those feelings are there. And then in, in the Psalms of David, he oftentimes, what he is, is that he has a self-talk. Preaching to his feelings, his soul. Psalm 42. Saul, why are you downcast? Hope in God. I know you feel miserable, you feel despair, you feel depressed and you are looking for all these looking at all these negative things but the gospel is there's hope look to look to god and find hope about when when you are going through the bitterness you are just overwhelmed with this 
bitterness, sense of hatred. You, you thought you had forgiven, but that feeling comes again. That's why we need healing. And that, that happens that we cling to the Lord. Abba, I belong to you. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Abba, I belong to you. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on my state. Well, I'm not kidding. You know that I'm usually uh, five, six days a week, I swim a mile. My knees are bad. I, I, can't, I can't walk. I can't run anymore. But I used to be a swimmer. There's no impact in this water. And as I'm going back and forth, oftentimes those are the prayer. In odd lap, Abba, I belong to you. In even lap that I'm doing, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. It might not sound much at all, but my soul is catching up, listening to my preaching, to my own soul. I close with this. Charles Colson, uh, in his one of the my favorite books, Loving God, writes this. It is not what we do that matters, but what a sovereign God chooses to do through us. God doesn't want our success. He wants us. God doesn't demand our achievements. He demands our obedience. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of a paradox where through the ugly defeat of a cross, a holy God is utterly glorified. Victory comes through defeat, healing through brokenness, finding self through losing self. Oh, this is a so good news. Especially if you're going through some tough time, feeling like you're all alone. That might be God's severe mercy for you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful for your scripture. It is indeed living and active. It penetrates our thoughts and the depth of our soul. Our desire is to see things from God's perspective, God-centered perspective. We desire to seek first your kingdom. And we desire to be led by faith, not by feelings. Make us real, real followers of Christ in this day and age. May we retain our saltiness in so doing. May you bless us in our reckless abandonment to God. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.